You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Researchers asked cis people if they would date trans people. The headline read, and so as not to keep us in suspense, the subhead let us know that the news was not good. The results of the first ever study on this subject were bleak. Sex researcher and recent Savage Lovecast guest Justin Lee Miller wrote up the results of the study for Vice, which is where I encountered that headline and that subhead. The results were published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, Researchers pulled nearly 1,000 adults, mostly Canadian, skewing younger, queers overrepresented in the sample. With those caveats, caveated, 98% of respondents identified as cisgendered, a.k.a. not trans. Miller writes, how many cisgender people are open to the idea of dating a transgender partner? Overall, 87.5% of participants said they would not be open to dating someone who is trans. In other words, Miller continues, just one in eight people expressed willingness to date a trans man, trans woman, or both. Just one in eight. The gang over at Them, Condé Nast's online LGBTQ publication, framed the results this way. The new study measures, quote, the extent of trans discrimination when it comes to romantic and sexual relationships, and considering, quote, the discrimination trans people face on a daily basis, it comes as no surprise that trans people are overlooked when it comes to dating. Because just one in eight. Let's back up, zoom out a little bit. Gays and lesbians were more open to dating trans men and women, nearly a quarter of them, while just 3% of straight people were open to dating trans folks. But one in eight cisgendered people, sissies for short, were open to dating trans men and trans women. And that's 12.5% of the sissies out there. And that is bad news about cis people and bad news for trans people. And it's bad news that Vice and them and everyone I saw tweeting about this study wants us to feel bad about. But is it bad news? If 12.5% of the population is open to dating trans people, that means there are more people open to dating trans people than there are people out there open to dating, well, me. Okay, I'm going to step outside my comfort zone here, really far outside it, and do some gulp, math, there are roughly 130 adult women in the United States and 125 million adult men for a total of 255 million adult Americans. 0.06% of the population is trans, according to the best available estimate. So subtract those 1.4 million trans adults from that 255 million total adults, and we're left with 253.6 million American sissies. 12.5% of 253.6 million is 31,700,000 people, more than 30 million sissies open to dating trans folks. It's hard to say exactly how many men are gay and bi. Estimates range from 2.2% of adult males, according to the Centers for Disease Control, to 7.7% of adult males, according to the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. If the 2.2% figure is correct, 1.8% gay, 0.4% bi, That means there are 2,750,000 gay and bi men out there open to dating men. If it's the higher figure, 7.7% of the population, 5.8% gay, 1.9% bi, that means there are 9,625,000 gay and bi men out there open to dating other men. 
like me. Which means there are anywhere between 3 and 11 times as many people out there open to dating a trans person as there are men open to dating, well, me. Not that I'm looking, I'm taken, but you know, just as a thought experiment. For lesbians, the odds are a little worse. Just using the high-end numbers from the National Survey for Sexual Health and Behavior, 5.1% of adult Americans identify as either lesbian, 1.5%, or bi, 3.6%. So lesbians are looking at 6,630,000 female folks out there, at least open to dating them, compared again to the well over 30 million folks out there, at least open to dating a trans person. So how exactly are the results of this study bad news? About cis folks or for trans folks. Sure, it could be better news. The percentage of the population willing to date trans men and women could be 25% or 50%. And open to dating does not equal actually dating, actually would date, or actually have dated. And the results of the study could be skewed by some high-minded virtue signaling on the part of some of the study's participants. But the results would have to be awfully skewed to bring the numbers of people open to dating trans folks down to the much, much lower numbers of men and women who are open to dating members of their own sex. So here's my headline. 12.5% ain't too shabby. And that percentage has to be a lot larger now than it was a decade or two ago. There's no research for comparison, first ever study of its kind, remember. But it's hard to believe the number was larger pre-Laverne Cox Also, as more and more trans people come out and live openly as trans people and more and more cis people meet trans people or meet the trans people they already know, the percentage of people who are at least open to dating a trans person is likely to continue to rise, which in fairness to Justin Lay Miller, he pointed out in his piece advice. The study, Lay Miller writes, may underestimate cis people's true openness to dating trans partners, perhaps because they don't personally know anyone who is trans and they're basing their responses on stereotypes. If they were to meet someone who is trans, maybe they would change their mind. We hear about that sort of thing on this show all the time. A person who wasn't open to dating someone who was bi or kinky or paws or trans changes their mind after meeting someone that they were attracted to who is bi or kinky or paws or trans or, in some rare instances, all of the above. All too often, the default spin on LGBT anything is negative. We're always looking for those black linings and whatever silver clouds are up in the sky or we're looking for clouds and cloudless skies because our victimization is real and we're used to playing the victim card and the victim card is often the right card to play and sometimes it's literally the only card we have in our hand. But this wasn't one of those times and the spin that this study got was the wrong spin. Because if we do want to see the number of sissies open to dating trans people grow, study find sucky cis people don't want to date amazing trans people is the wrong spin. The spin you want is this. Study finds a large and likely growing number of cis people are open to dating amazing trans people. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's and a lot of my big fat A's. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum edition is twice as long, no ads. TV's Guy Branham joins us to talk about his new memoir, My Life as a Goddess, and tackle a couple of questions from my listeners. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a Magnum subscriber, and I'm hoping that you can help me with a situation that I'm finding pretty distressing. Uh, so my mom died in September 2017, and my dad and her at the time had been married for 35 years. My dad 
started dating somebody January or February 2018 and plans for Christmas have started coming up and he wants to bring his girlfriend to Christmas. My brother and sister are saying that if he insists on bringing her, they won't come. I think that they're not ready and I'm not really ready to have a stepmom. And so the idea of seeing my dad with someone new is difficult. And it puts me in the position of having to choose between my dad or my siblings at Christmas time. And so I told my dad that at about 10 months into his relationship and a little over a year since mom died, I don't really appreciate being put in that circumstance and that I would choose my siblings over him this year because I think he should just be more understanding that they're not ready. And then he said, well, what about 2019? And I said, look, I think it's too early to plan two years down the road for a relationship that's less than six months. But if you stay together, then I'll reverse my opinion and have Christmas with you rather than my siblings. So I told some of my friends about this and had mixed reactions. Some said, you know, yes, my dad's being unreasonable. Others said, I'm being selfish and immature. And I just wanted your take on it. I'm sorry for your loss. It hasn't even been a year since your mother died. My heart goes out to you. I lost my mother a decade and change ago now, and it still gives me pain. I'm still grieving that loss. So my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to your siblings. My heart goes out to your dad who lost his partner of 35 years, lost his wife of 35 years, his romantic and intimate partner of 35 years. There is this difference, though, in the grief experienced by children when a parent dies and the grief experienced by a husband or wife when their spouse dies. And the difference is often stark because if your mom was ill for a very long time, your father in many ways already grieved that relationship because their relationship changed in fundamental and profound ways. Again, if your mother had a long, slow decline before her death. When someone becomes caretaker and nurse, that is an important, loving, intimate role but it is a different role than spouse, husband, or wife. And people who have become the caretaker, they grieve the spouse, husband, wife relationship even before their spouse has died. It doesn't mean they aren't devastated. It doesn't mean they don't love their partner. They're loving their partner, but playing a different role for their partner. And they're grieving the relationship and what it once meant because when someone is dying slowly over a year or two, what the relationship once was predeceases the, 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 the ailing person. So the day your mother died, you lost your mom. Your dad had already lost his wife, potentially, depending on how ill she was and for how long she was ill, before her death. And he may have been ready to get out there and start living again a little sooner than you guys, than you and your siblings are comfortable with. But you need to put yourself into his experience. You need to project yourself into his emotional experience of his spouse's death, which is different than your experience of your mother's death. It seems to me that you and your siblings are being unfair to your dad. It hasn't even been a year yet. 
It was several months after your mother's death that he began dating again. You guys aren't comfortable meeting this woman at Christmas. Your dad seems to be willing to accommodate your discomfort and to allow you guys to grieve longer. His response to, I have to pick between you and my siblings, wasn't to start throwing bombs or issuing ultimatums or rewriting wills. His response was, what about next Christmas? So he's willing to negotiate, willing to accommodate, willing to take into consideration your grief and where you guys are at. You need to do the same for him. You need to be willing to take into consideration his grief and where he is at and recognize that you guys are at different stages of the grieving process. If Christmas seems too fraught, if the emotional stakes seem too high, if the first Christmas without your mother last year was incredibly painful and you guys aren't ready yet for the second Christmas without your mother to include evidence that your father didn't die too, that he is still living and still alive and still making intimate connections with people. That's not a betrayal of your mother. I would hope that your mother, as so many people do at the end of their lives, when they're going to predecease their partners, that she wished for him to continue to live and to continue to have love and experiences and joy in his life, that she didn't expect him to die with her emotionally, if not physically. Your dad seems to be Haggling would seem to be the wrong word. I don't know how to describe this. these negotiations you're having with your father about your siblings and their feelings and Christmas and the stakes. But he seems willing to negotiate, to compromise, to accommodate where you guys are at. Take Christmas off the table. Do Christmas with your siblings. Grieve your mother for one last second Christmas. Always remember your mother at Christmas. I remember my mother at Christmas every year. But take one last Christmas just for yourselves and your siblings. But meet with this woman and your dad before then. Let her know that if she's important to your father and and this relationship has legs and it goes, that one day you will be ready to embrace her. But right now it's still too raw. There's still too much pain. It's still too soon. It hasn't even been a year yet. And so instead of attacking her, attacking your father, instead of recriminations, just acknowledgement of the pain and the grief and where you're at versus where he's at, what you're ready for, what you're not ready for, but some gesture that points to a future where you will be ready to accept and embrace her and your dad's life after your mother's death, a life that he's entitled to live. So get together for dinner. Maybe do Thanksgiving with your dad and his girlfriend. Just you, if your siblings don't want to come. And then definitely one party in 2019. If if they're still together a year from now, you guys need to welcome her into the family. Hey, Dan. Straight. Male. Damn. (laughs) I was just at the store buying ties. And then I had this whole conversation with this girl that was working there. I thought it was going very I felt it was going very well. Uh, At one point, she had a business card. And uh, it didn't have her name on it. Cause I guess she was just part time. And I said, that's messed up. They didn't even put your name on the business card. And she said, Oh, you're right. And she put it down. She wrote it down. And then, and then she's, she was uh, Arab and she spoke Arabic and I've taken Arabic. So I wrote, I wrote the name in Arabic and then I fucked it up. <laughs> and then, and then I thought in the moment, I was like, Oh, I got follow up to this. I was like, 
oh, but I bet if you would have wrote your number down, I could have wrote, wrote that in Arabic well. And I thought that was pretty good. And she's like, oh, nice try, nice try, like playfully. But nonetheless, nice try as in great. <laughs> it's not going anywhere, apparently. And it was in front of people, Dan. That's embarrassing. And it sucks because in the moment, you think, well, you think maybe something's going well. And so you give it a go. Uh, and if you don't try, if you don't try to ask a person out, then you beat yourself up after for not having the balls or the ovaries, whatever, to do it. But then if you do do it and then you get shut down like that, it's embarrassing. So my question, I guess, is like, I know you talk about the fact that it's not necessary to protect the male ego uh, for women. And I get that. I understand it's not their job or anything. But I feel like you're a little critical on that because, man, it is kind of fucked up for your ego. and. I mean, not that necessarily needs protecting, but I mean, it's, I don't know about most guys, but I'm a pretty confident guy generally, but that really kind of hurts my ego now. So, I mean, next time I'm going to think twice about kind of taking that chance. And I feel like maybe there is some efficacy to protecting the male ego to an extent, because men are the ones who are doing all the asking out and making the moves. And if you get shut down especially if it's a consistent thing, it really hurts your ego. So maybe it should be protected in a certain way. You know, if some girl asked me out and I, I didn't, wasn't into her, I, I would, I would try my best to not make her feel bad about it. Cause I would appreciate it. So of course the other advice would be, Oh, just get back out there and do, but you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of striking out lately, Mr. Savage. And it really fucking, you know, jokes aside, it really, you know, it hurts, man. It doesn't feel good. It makes you feel sad. All of this, this giant pity party because of nice try. Nice try also overheard. There were other people around when she shot you down so cruelly. What would have been better had she given you her number, given you a fake number so that you wouldn't lose face in front of whoever else might have been around? Then you'd be calling me as some other men have called me to complain about how bitches give you fake numbers and that's rude and inconsiderate and blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm just going to have to tell you to do what you don't want to do, which is suck it the fuck up. Rejection happens. You were engaged in a playful conversation with this woman. It sounds like you had a friendly interaction with a stranger and you asked her for her number in a playful way. I don't think it was manipulative or dishonest or deceitful. You were talking in Arabic and you wrote her name down in Arabic and you asked for her phone number to write it down in Arabic. It was just playful. It was flirtatious. And you don't know what's up with her. You don't know whether she's got a boyfriend. You don't know whether she's married. You don't know whether she's a lesbian. You don't know her at all. And rather than give you her phone number and then shoot you down via text or give you a fake phone number, she said, hey, that was a nice try, which was her way of saying and, and a perfectly fine way of saying just like your way of asking for a number was perfectly fine you didn't say may i please have your number because i would like to ask you out on a date and continue to explore this connection that we are clearly having you playfully asked her number she playfully said i'm not going to give you my number which was her right and also it was a signal from her that if your interest in her was romantic you can stop wasting your time on her now because it's not going to happen that's considerate when someone gives you a direct answer to an ask guys are complaining to me all the time that women don't give them direct answers that women are like, Oh yeah, let's hang out sometime. And the guy lives in false hope because women are socialized not to say no to men. Men are scary. Men can be violent. Women have legitimate reasons to deflect as opposed to be direct 
when a man is asking her for something that he wants. And here you had a woman be direct and you're calling me to complain about it because it hurts your ego. Yeah, rejection sucks. It always hurts. But this woman rejects you. That woman rejects you. Finally, you ask somebody out who accepts you. And then that's so sweet because acceptance is so much sweeter than rejection. But also the contrast between these experiences. Having gotten shot down previously, when you land it, when you get the number, you get the date or you get the girl, you get the guy, that experience is made more intensely pleasurable and rewarding and satisfying because it's in contrast to the rejections you had experienced previously. So yeah, she shot you down and that sucks and that hurts. Should men be protected? Men are expected to do the asking out. Men don't do all the asking out. I've seen plenty of women hit on men in my time. Men are expected to do the asking out. Should women be courteous? Yeah. And direct. Courteous and direct. It sounds like that's exactly what she was. Courteous and direct. You asked her out while other people were standing around listening. You put her on the spot. She rejected you while other people were standing around listening. Putting you on the spot. You didn't receive anything at her hands that you weren't meeting out to her. But I guess I'm not entirely sure what you're positing or, or suggesting when you say that men should be protected, that their egos should be protected. People should be considerate. People shouldn't be cruel or vicious. She didn't look at you and say, no way, never. She didn't say that you were ugly. She didn't say that you were unattractive. She didn't laugh in your face and say, nice try. She said, ah, oh, that was a good one. Nice try. Trying to get my phone number. Uh, lots of guys try to get my phone number. Something else that men have to bear in mind when they're approaching women. Women get approached constantly. That is its own burden. Men have to do, most men traditionally have to do the approaching. That is a burden. But to be approached constantly by men, to be always on the receiving end of that male attention, those asks, for all you know, you were the 10th guy that morning or that afternoon that asked for her number or flirted with her, or asked her out. She could have been exhausted from the emotional labor of gently deflecting the attention and the, the, the requests from men all fucking day long. Wrap this pity party up, caller. You got shot down. It happens, guys. Women move through the day feeling like they're getting shot up. Everybody's got their fucking cross to bear. No pity parties. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old queer female human, and I have a question about sexting. I have been sending increasingly explicit text messages back and forth with this guy for about a year, and I don't know about the safest way to do that. I'm really turned on by the idea of sending pictures and videos, but is there like a grown-up version of Snapchat out there? What are the real risks here? I just have been Googling around and nothing really seems to answer my questions. And I don't really know where to go. So I'm looking for a safer sex guide for sexting. There's no Snapchat out there for grownups that makes sexting safe. Sexting always involves some risk, sending people dirty pictures, swapping dirty pictures. You don't know what that person's going to do with those photographs. If everything's friendly now, but things take a turn, revenge porn is a thing. It's a thing that's illegal in more and more jurisdictions and should be illegal everywhere. There should be a federal law that makes it possible to go after revenge pornographers. But it's a risk. You've got to really trust the person you're sharing photographs with, whatever app you're using, because they can go anywhere. 
in an instant. They are replicable, infinitely replicable. And so the rule is, you know, if it's out there and it's going to destroy your life, maybe don't put it out there. But sexting really does improve a lot of relationships. It really is how people flirt these days. Uh, And it's not just how people flirt with near strangers. It's also how people in long-term relationships crank each other up. They sex. They send photographs back and forth. And then they exist. They exist in the world. There are apps. Instagram has a way to send a photograph that disappears after its first viewing. Snapchat, of course, disappears. But people can take screen grabs of those photographs before they disappear. And then those are out there. And once they're on Tumblr, there's no pulling them back. So if you couldn't live with your tits being on the internet for all eternity, don't take photographs of your tits and send them out. Or your butt or your dick or your pussy or whatever else. Because it's possible. It could happen. I, for one, am looking forward to the future where images making their way onto the internet, dirty pictures, sexts, is just not an issue because everybody's got something out there somewhere. Actually, I think that day is here now. I think pretty much everyone does have something out there right now somewhere. So this is going to become less toxic, less problematic over time. But if you're a school teacher, school teacher just lost her job because a video of her doing a pole dance found its way to her colleagues and students. She's losing her job. Even though pole dancing is a legit exercise routine taught in malls across middle America and red state America, whatever, lost your job because that video, this is still a problem. It's still a risk. And if you're uncomfortable with this risk, the only way to eliminate it is to not sext. But who wants to live in a world where you can't send somebody you're interested in a picture of your junk? Hi, Dan. I'm a 27 year old bisexual female. I live in Georgia and I have a question for you about polyamory. So I've been with my current partner for about two years. He's amazing. He knows that I'm bisexual. And one of the first things he told me when we started dating was that if I ever wanted to date a woman, that's totally fine. Not a deal breaker for him at all. For a while, I was just so in the throes of being in love with him that I didn't even think about it. But now we've kind of settled in We have a great relationship. I feel really strong and solid in our relationship. And now suddenly I'm finding that I'm feeling less and less of my queer identity in my day-to-day life because I'm in a heterosexual relationship. And so a big part of me is like, you know what? I'm going to go talk to some girls, see what happens. And he's, I told him that I wanted to do that. And he has been on board the whole time. So I have the freedom to go and do this and talk to people and talk to women And I'm fucking terrified of women, I've discovered now. I don't know how to talk to them. I feel like a huge gross troll every time I get near a woman. I have no idea. I feel like a gross, creepy, predatory man when I talk to them. And so I'm not sure what to do or how to get over that. Um, And on top of that, I'm having some trouble coming to terms with, like, my partner's just letting me do this and trust me. And I don't know if, if push comes to shove, if if he would want to do something like this and go outside of our relationship, if I would be okay with it. So I have a lot of guilt going on because of that as well. So I'm confused and I'm guilty and I would love to have some advice on how you would handle beginning a polyamorous relationship and how the heck I should talk to a woman. So you feel gross and creepy when you approach women or when you're around women and Tried to call you, wanted to ask you, are you being gross and creepy when you approach women? Usually people 
come across as gross and creepy or they feel gross and creepy. And it would be wonderful if everyone who came across as gross and creepy felt gross and creepy because then they could self-correct as perhaps you are attempting to call her. So good on you. But often when people come across as gross and creepy, it's because they are having a dishonest interaction with someone because they have an ulterior motive that they haven't placed on the table because they are weaseling around trying to get into someone's pants trying to ask somebody out without actually directly asking them out because they fear rejection and don't want to risk the no so they don't give that person the opportunity to say no and that person gets the sense that they're being hit on or asked out without it being direct and they can't say look i'm not interested when you haven't actually asked them directly if they are because then they're going to look crazy and you can say hey i wasn't even hitting on you so if you're being gross and creepy stop it if you're talking to women because you're trying to get into their pants and you have an ulterior motive and you're not being honest and direct, be honest and direct. And then you won't have an ulterior motive anymore to have that conversation and it will feel less gross and less creepy or not gross or not creepy. You then, however, risk rejection. It'll help if you get on the apps and put yourself out there as somebody who's in a relationship, a woman seeking another woman, perhaps another woman who's in a relationship, a bi woman who wants to have the same kind of first time same sex experience that you want to have. Trust me, the world is crawling with women like you. I hear all the time from women in opposite-sex relationships who have always known they were bi or just realized that they're bi and their partners are like, fine, go for it. Go get yourself some pussy. There are lots and lots and lots of you out there. And sometimes a woman situated in the way you're situated, opposite-sex partner, bi, wants to be with another woman, feels self-conscious about approaching lesbians. As if lesbians are the only option. They're not. There are actually three times as many bisexual women as there are lesbian-identified women. So hang a shingle. That's what the internet was invented for. And then you put yourself out there and the people who approach you are expressing an interest in you sexually or romantically. Then you can have a conversation about going out on a date or hanging out or getting to know each other with Everyone's motives being explicit. No one has an ulterior motive then. And while it won't feel creepy or gross then, it's still going to feel a little high stakes. You're still going to be nervous. You're still going to get butterflies in your stomach. But you're not going to be manipulating someone because you're having a conversation with them when you have an ulterior motive. Having a conversation about flowers and plants when, when you actually want is into their pants. As for your boyfriend... You know, there are people out there who have open relationships that are one-sided where one person has sex with other people and the other doesn't. And some people look at that and think, well, that's unfair. That's the wrong question. What do both parties want? Are both parties happy? If he's happy to let you have sex with other people and has no desire to have sex with other people himself and you wouldn't want him to have sex with other people, and yeah, that's kind of a contradiction and a little hypocritical, but you can just own that and sit with it and let that be and it works for both of you or you're both happy in that relationship, that's fine. And it's not that uncommon, particularly in situations like yours where it's an opposite sex relationship and one partner is bi and the other partner is like, yeah, go do that same sex thing. Enjoy yourself. I'll meet your dick needs. Other women or another girlfriend can meet your puss needs. That's a wonderful thing that your boyfriend is giving that to you. And finally, caller, although right now you think I want to sleep with other people and I might take him up on that, but I don't want him sleeping with other people. You may change your mind after you've slept with some other people because you'll find most likely, hopefully, best case scenario after you've slept with some other people, that your feelings for your boyfriend haven't changed at all, that you still love him just as much as you did before. 
that your connection to him hasn't been diluted or ruined or derailed. And then your worries about what might happen if he sleeps with somebody else won't be so acute because you will have experienced yourself the truism for many that having sex with somebody other than your partner doesn't take anything away from your partner and in fact can enhance your relationship with your partner. And you may then find yourself more comfortable with the concept of your boyfriend doing what you have done, some other girl. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old queer man living in L.A. The story about my ex. My ex and I broke up two years ago after four years of dating and two years of living together in Seattle. We broke up for a few reasons. She wanted to move back to the Midwest, and I did not. I was struggling to be supportive of her homesickness, and she was really hurt by that. Even though we were very much in love, we were definitely torn by some of our long-term goals. Flash forward to now, after two years of pretty much no contact, my ex and I began texting regularly again a few months ago. We began talking weekly after that, and then since I was traveling for work close to her, we decided to go camping together for one night. In a moment, we picked up pretty much where we left off. Nicknames, holding hands, kissing, like the our best sex ever, um, and it really felt like we were in love just like before. We've been back in our respective cities for a few weeks now, but we talk multiple times a week now. Um, we text daily. We tell each other we love each other. Neither of us regrets what happened in the past with us breaking up, and we both kind of viewed the time apart as necessary and good. But I definitely want to be working towards a future with her again. Here's where it gets a little messy. She's moving in a couple months back to the Midwest. She's been very overwhelmed by the prospect of moving, and so having serious talk about us right now has been hard. I've tried to talk about us getting back together, and each time it kind of dead ends. She gets overwhelmed, is stressed. We leave the door open and kind of walk away saying, I love you. So it's clearly a little confusing. Um, so more or less, I've been taking it day by day with these really intense feelings of joy, talking with her, but also intense feelings of dread, getting entangled with her again. I don't really want to open myself up to losing her again, but I also recognize that I kind of have to if there's any chance of us getting back together. Um, I do want to be in a relationship with her, but I, I don't want to push the issue because I'm, I'm kind of nervous that it's going to overwhelm her. So for the time being, I feel stuck in limbo. So, my question. Do you think I should wait it out, take it slow, keep doing what we're doing, which is this kind of together romantic thing from a distance? And then bring up dating again after she's moved in a couple months? Or should I be completely transparent, explain how hard this is for me, and try and force the conversation sooner rather than later and avoid unnecessarily stringing out my own emotion? You say you don't want to open yourself up to the pain of losing her again. and But guess what? Too late. You've already opened yourself up to the pain of losing her again. Relationships, we're always open to pain. Pain is always a possibility, a negative outcome, a breakup, heartache, always a possibility, even if you two were on the same page about where you wanted to live and other big LTGs, long-term goals. There's always the risk of getting dumped, of it not working out for other reasons. I think the questions you have for me, though, really are a false choice. You're asking whether you should wait it out and take it slow or talk about how you're feeling. And I think you can do both. You can talk about how you're feeling. You can put that on the table. You can be honest and open about where you are right now and take it slow and wait it out. You have no choice really when it comes to the waiting it out and taking it slow part because circumstance is pulling you apart. Circumstance is going to force you guys 
to slow walk this relationship, to continue to connect, continue to talk, continue to meet up, fly where she is. She can fly where you are. You can go camping again and then see what happens over time. But for your own safety, I think for your own emotional safety, before you completely reinvest in this relationship, you should talk about how hard this is for you. You should talk about how you're feeling. Because if she is not on the same page at all, wouldn't you rather know that now rather than finding that out after you've waited, after you've taken it slow, and then you finally have that conversation that you've been waiting to have for a year or two years and you discover that she wasn't open to this relationship resuming in the same way that you are. And that the last few weeks was a trip down memory lane with some hot sex and camping thrown into the mix. If that's how she's feeling, better you should know that now than after investing more time. If that's how she's feeling, it would be better for you to know that now. Hi, Dan. I have a question just regarding my uh, kind of first really serious relationship. And I've had like, you know, long-term relationships in the past, but this is the first time I've lived with somebody. We've only been together about nine months, but it it really feels right. Anyways, uh, it recently came out that... um, he has slept with almost every single one of his close female friends, which it does not bother me that he slept with them. I mean, it bothers me in like that small way that, you know, he wasn't always mine or whatever, that possessiveness. But that's not the part that bothers me. The part that bothers me is that we've moved in together and he sort of pressured me into, not pressured me, but he said, you know, these people are really important to me. I want you to have a friendship with them and kind of made me feel like their approval and their acceptance of me is really important. And I've formed relationships with these people and been really honest about insecurities about my body or insecurities about my relationship or whatever, you know. And now it comes out that he's had sex with not just one, not just two, but like four or five, six of them. And that's just the part that bothers me is that I have year-long friendships with these people that sort of feels like based on being very one-sided and maybe I'm being a huge baby about it. I sort of feel like I am, but it's like the the sort of half-truth and the lie of it that I can't really get over. It just feels like their, his friendship with them was prioritized over his relationship with me. Anyways, just wondering what your thoughts are. Now you know how we feel, gay guys, because this is really common in gay land where you meet some guy and you begin to date this guy and you're falling in love with this guy and you meet all of his friends And it turns out that he slept with all of his friends. It's so common for a gay guy to have slept with his closest friends and for him to have become friends because they hooked up and they really liked each other. But then it wasn't a romantic or intimate connection, but there was a friendship there. It's so common that for a lot of gay guys, there's just this assumption. And the assumption is he's probably already slept with all his friends anyway. So it's not an issue typically when that comes tumbling out. The problem here is your boyfriend pushed you to have relationships with these women to get to know them and and open up to them without telling you who they were to him or what his relationship with them was in the past or how he connected with them. And because you're in straight land, the assumption isn't that a guy has slept with all of his friends, particularly when all of his friends are female. So your boyfriend kind of sent you out there to make these connections to form these relationships without fully informing you. And that feels a little deceitful, a little manipulative, and setting aside the fact that you like these women, it sounds like you like these women and you had decent, good relationships with these women, 
so the issue isn't them or anything that they did, although they also didn't disclose. The issue is that he withheld this information, that you weren't just making friends with friends. You were making friends with old FWBs, friends with benefits that had expired by the time you came along, but there you were. My question for you would be, if you had known, if he had told you, would you have run screaming? You meet this guy, you really like this guy, it's only a weekend, and he says, you know, full disclosure, all of my female friends are women I fucked, just so you know. How would you have reacted to the truth being told promptly? When should he have told you this? What would have been the optimal time? A weekend, you would have bolted. A weekend, that would be a really weird thing for someone to tell you. Three months? Six months? Sometimes people know that they share some information that will ruin a new relationship. And it's not really relevant. We don't have to disclose all of our past sexual experiences or encounters to someone when we're dating them. And by the time you feel like, ah, they kind of have a right to know this, you've withheld it so long that you're self-conscious about how long you've withheld this information. And then you delay, you hesitate, you continue to hesitate. And then even more time passes, you become more self-conscious about it. And then finally you tell them and then it's an issue that you waited so long to tell them. But we can all understand why someone might wait to roll something like that out because who amongst us hasn't waited and then hesitated and then too much time passed and then you were incredibly self-conscious about telling someone something that they needed to know at some point but you couldn't tell them right away. The other thing to watch out for is whether this is a pattern. Is this just the one thing he didn't know how to tell you? Had he told other girlfriends that he has a large circle of female friends, all of whom are former sex partners, and those girls instantly dumped him, which made him feel self-conscious, which would explain but not justify not telling you sooner? Well, that might be something you can take into consideration. And if that's part of it and he hasn't lied to you about anything else and you like him or love him, maybe you can forgive this. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Guy Branham. He is the host of talk show The Game Show on True TV. He's a writer and TV performer and producer. His credits include X-Play on G4, Chelsea Lately, The Mindy Project, and Awkward. And he is the author of a new memoir just out, and I just finished it, and it is just terrific. Guy Branham, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Hey, Guy, how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm delighted that Dan Savage read my book. I read it. I loved it. It's really hilarious. He also had a, an excerpt recently in the New York Times uh, of the, 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 the chapter you wrote in the book about the gay voice and how we sound and its utility. And, and I've often felt this, too. I agree with what you said, that in some ways it's a signal that we send out to each other. It's a flare that we're sending up so we can find each other. And it's not an affectation. It's a survival skill, the gay voice that so many straight people complain about. <laughs> Um, right. But it's also like this thing that marks us as different. I mean, like everyone always wants to point out that we can look the same as everybody else if we need to. But, you know, if we're doing it right, we can't sound the same as everyone else. You know, we we have other stuff going on. We have other things we need to express. I get calls all the time from people who from straight people who have a you know young straight people. They have a gay friend come out and they'll call me and complain because now their gay friend sounds different. And so they think this gay voice is an affectation. And I'm always in the position of having to explain to them that the voice your gay friend was using before coming out when they were trying to sound like a bro, that was the affectation. This is his voice. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to understand when you've lived in a world that has worked for you for all of your life. 
pop culture works for you. TV works for you. What what is it about pop culture? I, I'm 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 pretty gay, but I'm not a, a pop culture sort of fanatic uh, like you are. And, and sometimes uh, I feel like I'm missing that gene. And I have plenty of gay genes. I'm the musical theater show queen of the world. I know them all by heart. Uh, I always insist that we only get three to five of the powers. So um, <laughs> I'm charming at parties, make relatively good Moroccan food and have a mouth like a Hoover. Um, and like, you know, it's like everybody's like, you know, you're not the entirety of a cliche, but, you know, there, it is always magical when you find out the ways that sort of like these parts of yourself that seem weird are something that are sort of more universal uh among gay guys. And it's, it's a weird and magical thing. I mean, pop culture, I think is just really paying attention to a world outside of the, your own world because your own world hasn't always worked for you. You're trying, but like, I, I feel like gay men particularly are a little bit always trying to figure out a way out. Yes. Uh, I think so too. I think escapism is really important, particularly when you know, often I think when you're young and gay, you feel trapped. You feel trapped in a straight world, in a straight family. You feel trapped in the closet. And anything that sparkles, anything that, that, that feels like escapism is just so welcome. It's such a relief. It's such a tonic. Well, fantasy is so important when like none of the practical paths in your world lead towards anything that seems like a life that you would want. Um, you know, you, you have to have at least the, the hope of, of big options pulling you along. Otherwise life gets pretty hopeless. So what, what were your impractical options that, that got you where you are now? <laughs> you, you, you seem to, you know, a lot of gay kids grow up pop culture obsessed, obsessed with television. A lot of them want to go into it. Not everybody has the success that you've had. What did you do right? Well, I mean, first I did things that were very wrong. I went to law school. I tried to give my mother the life for me that she wanted. And then I, I came out relatively late and realized, like, no, this is not going to work for me. Um, so then I started stand-up. Uh, and that really was a way to be doing something that felt pretty fun and ridiculous on a regular basis. And that sort of, like, pulled me into a life in entertainment, which is, you know, not so bad. There's not so much heavy lifting. So what's it like writing a joke, hearing it come out of, say, Mindy Kaling's mouth on television and knowing people are laughing in their living rooms all over the world? I mean, it's it's thoroughly delightful. And also, like, getting to work with people like Mindy Kaling or Chelsea Handler, who, like, can find, you know, extra funny in the joke, but also, like, just getting to write for fabulous ladies. Like, on the Mindy Project, the fact that I got to write for, like, a girl in the city sitcom like Mary Tyler Moore was, you know, really fun and exciting and very much what I, as a young gay boy, dreamed of. Enough about your book. Everybody should get your book. Everybody should read your book. We wanted to have you on to tackle a couple of questions from my callers, allow you in the midst of your book tour to take a break from talking about yourself, which you have to do a lot on a book tour, and talk about other people <laughs> and give some sex advice. Are you up for it? Sure. Hey, Dan. 26-year-old gay cis male in New York City. I have a question about asking someone about their plastic surgery. I recently met a guy at the gym who had the most incredible ass I've ever seen. We hooked up, and the second I started playing with his ass, I realized that it was fake. It wasn't a problem. I was just very surprised because it was the first time I'd ever encountered someone with body-enhancing surgery. He's going to sleep over tonight, and the butt implants are on my mind to the point where I'm worried that I might lose my boner or something while we're going at it. My question is, 
is it okay to ask someone about their butt implants? Or are you supposed to kind of just pretend that it's not a thing? I don't want to offend him. I just kind of want to talk about the fact that they're there and uh, kind of get a reason why he wanted to do that to his body. All right, you work in Hollywood, you work in television, you live in L.A. There are people running around with butt implants and other plastic surgery interventions. You encounter them all the time. Is it ever okay to ask them, hey, what's up with the butt implants or the tit implants or the lip filler? Yes, but you, I mean, you have to wait longer than one post-gym hookup. Like, you need to know somebody relatively well. Um, I would say, like, six months of working together or, like, three months of relatively solid friendship before you're allowed to say, so, who's your doctor? And I think that's the best (laughs) way of going in, of making it conspiratorial and, like, hey, I maybe want to have something done. Who did you go to? Would you be distracted by butt implants? No. I mean, I'm excited for anything anyone does to make themselves hotter. Like, I mean, what's, what's less fake about the gym? What's less fake about steroids, you know, um, like gay guys, what's less fake about like hair removal. Gay guys are constantly doing things to make themselves more attractive. They are much more resourceful than I am most of the time. And I am very impressed by that and should be delighted by it. I think if a gay man is losing his boner because he knows another gay man, uh, has butt implants, it's just because he's getting to know that person. And it's always hard for gay guys to be aroused by anyone whose first and last name we know. Oh, is that true? You think that's true? I've never had that problem. I'm the marrying kind. I've never had that problem. Um, That's very respectable for you, but there have definitely been times when I got to know someone and was like, all right, we are friends now. Let me go find a stranger to have sex with. You know, there is a lot of stranger hookup in gay land that, that, you know, men are pigs and straight men would do everything gay men do if straight men could, but straight men can't because women won't. So it's not like gay men are, <laughs> gay men, are men, right? But men enabled by right. all male sex culture. Uh, and I have heard from like gay guys who have a problem. Like once they get to know somebody, then they, they can't be, they're, they're incapable of being aroused by someone who's, like you said, first and last name they know. Uh, and I'm not virtue signaling here or patting myself on the back. You know, I am the marrying kind, but we are the non-monogamous marrying kind and the go to the international Mr. Leather contest marrying kind. <laughs> there are all kinds of marrying kinds these days and not just like retreat to the suburbs, adopt a kid and a dog marrying kind. But it, it is a problem for some gay men that they can't be intimate with people who they know. And is it – I always look at that and think what you're afraid of is being known. Uh-huh. I think that there's danger that comes with it, but I also, you know, I have to uh, avoid feeling too sort of like uh, girlfriendy or mm. like um, mentory with somebody who um, I'm messing around with. One time I was messing around with this dude uh, and we were sort of talking about his post army plans. And then there came a point where it was just like, I can't have sex with you anymore, but I will help you put together a college plan. <laughs> you became the career counselor and at that point it wasn't yeah. sexy anymore yeah can we keep you for one more question sure hey dan so i'm basically ross from uh friends uh my wife uh sort of <laughs> figured out that she was gay while she was pregnant and so i uh i'm about two years out from that and like we're handling things as best as can be 
but I, uh, we're living separately and all that, but I've been seeing somebody for about a year now and, uh, I want to take her to uh, a relative's wedding and, uh, my, and we haven't, I haven't really told like extended family or whatever that we're not to that we're, that we've separated. And, and basically she doesn't want me to tell my family that, that my extended family that she's gay. And, uh, this comes up because my mom just like asked for her consent, uh, with, uh, with telling the whole family that, that, that the reason why we were not together is that because she, now she's gay. It hasn't been really an, the gay part really hasn't been an issue. Like my family has been really accepting. Everybody has been like really like sort of fine about that bit. I mean, it just sucks that it like breaks up the whole relationship or, but, uh, but like, do I have the right to like tell people like that, like the reason why my marriage ended is because my wife is no longer attracted to men or was never really attracted to men. Like, I mean, it's kind of hard to have like a good intimate relationship with like uh, relatives and all that. Like, like if you can't tell them the reason why, why you broke up, she wants to say that we basically had a, intimacy issues and that's the reason why we're no longer together but it just sounds like i'm impotent or something and it doesn't really get at the real reason so can he out his wife i mean you can't out anybody those are the hard and fast rules but i think within those rules he gets to be you know um pretty direct with her like she figured something out about herself but that is you know impacting his life like um he, he I, I think that this is, I mean, they are co-parents. They have to be able to figure out how to deal with problems like this. And mm-hmm. she isn't just magically allowed to issue ultimata just because she's the gay party. It does seem like, well, I think he has a right to his life experience. And he yeah. has a right to his story. And this is where it gets complicated. You're not supposed to out people against their will. You're supposed to respect people's process when they're coming out. She's only been coming out for the last two years. And she's been coming out in the context of a marriage coming apart and becoming new parents. Like a lot of stress, a lot of shit coming at her. But I think he's right that if he has to run around saying we had intimacy issues, people are going to think, what did you do to her? Or what didn't you do to her? What couldn't you do to her? Right. And, and, and blame him. Because, you know, when a straight relationship falls apart – um, I, I think the tendency of a lot of people looking at that is to think, well, what did he do wrong? Because women are the nurturers, yeah. women are the good ones, women are the people who work on the relationship, and guys are the ones who fail at relationships. That's the cliche. That's the, the stereotype. That's the assumption. And so I, I think he should say to her, look, you get another year of me not telling people my story. And I know our stories overlap, and part of my story is part of your story, but I can't take the fall for this. One of the things that's really hard is like um, so frequently as gay person, people will expect me to like do stuff to help maintain their situational closetedness. And I'm just so bad. at it. <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm, I'm very not in the closet and, you know, there, sometimes there really is like a lot of playing spy that some people are invested in so that they can maintain their closetedness. And like the amount of energy I'm willing to put out for that is very limited. If you're keeping a secret, good for you. I will not reveal your secret, but if you're doing shit and expecting me not to talk about it, that's a different game. If you want to be closeted, like stay in that marriage, go to the wedding, like be closeted. If you want to be an out person, be an out person. But like, 
if there's in-between stuff, it's on you to maintain your little story. Yeah, it reminds me of what went down with my mom when I came out. Because I came out to my mom. I came out to one of my siblings, not the other two, not my dad. And there was this point which my mom got pretty upset with me. I was in a play. I'm a theater fag. Uh, and my character got married and my mom burst into tears because that was never going to happen for me. So I just told her I was gay. Uh, and it was a comedy and she's sitting there with my dad and can't tell him why she's so upset because I'm not yeah. out to her. And my mother sat me down and said, you didn't come out to anybody. You're pulling people into the closet with you. You've got to come out to everybody because I can't be in the closet. Oh. It does suck. You're right. Being closeted sucks. Now I know what it's like. Tell your father. That's really great because, like, being able to say, like, I'm not a stranger. Like, that was your mom. She's allowed to say your life affects my life. These people are married and share a child. Like, it's not exactly the same rules as just some random person who you know is closeted. Yeah, it's not gossip. It's his story. Yeah. It, he's not telling tales about his ex-wife. He's telling his own story. And I, and I do think that, you know... People have a right to their stories and people have a right to their narratives and people have a right to their experiences and people don't have to lie and cover up or alter their story to protect your closet indefinitely. And, uh, you know, I said, yeah. give her another year. That's if you're going to be considerate. He's already given her two years. He's been dating the woman right. he's with now for a year and extended family doesn't know. His whole extended family doesn't even know that he's that he and his wife are living separately and he's trying to explain who this woman is at this wedding and why he's with her. And short of saying, I'm Polly now, he's going to have to tell them that he and the wife aren't together anymore. And people are going to ask why. And what's he supposed to say? It, well, I mean, the thing is, is, it also means he doesn't need to be that worried about the whole, like, intimacy issues thing. Because eventually people are going to find out. And then they're going to realize, like, um, their intimacy issues were things, you know, he couldn't get over with uh, a, a Cialis. <laughs> That's right. He couldn't just go buy a pocket pussy and solve those intimacy issues. <laughs> Guy Branham, the new book is My Life is a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture, and you should check out his show, talk show, The Game Show on True TV. Thank you so much, Guy, for jumping on the phone. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. And, and congrats on the book. It really is it really is terrific. I really enjoyed it. I was laying in bed reading parts out loud to my husband, which is always the sign of a, a great book, a great uh, work of literature, in my opinion. That's so sweet. Was he dressed in leather or like some <laughs> sort of polymer? Uh, he was probably wearing a Speedo and taking a picture of himself and didn't hear a word I was saying. So <laughs> Fair. Hey, Dan, I'm the tech savvy at rescue. I'm a cis straight white guy in a West Coast city. And I'm going through a sort of a, a maybe breakup. I was in a roundabout way uh, caught on... Um, to dating apps by my girlfriend of about two years and I fully take uh, uh, accountability for what I was doing. Um, I wasn't meeting up with anyone off them. I had briefly downloaded them for a two-day window that I was on for about 12 hours during kind of a bit of a, a bout of really bad depression and Talked to like three people briefly and, and didn't really make any plans or anything. And then just in disgust of myself, deleted them. And she's understandably like, hey, this is, this is over. Um, her, her relative saw me <laughs> kismet uh, in the time that I was on there. And we've been, my ex, my girlfriend and I have been talking about, you know, why, why she would want to stay with me and ways of 
possibly pushing through and she brings up the big question um that i don't really know how to answer and it's like if if this is a thing that you did in a low point you know what would prevent you from you know having another bout of depression and doing something like this again and i don't know how to propose a way to fix it because i i want to think that i'm not this scumbag this, this person who actually does these things but clearly i am and I don't, I don't know how to inherently uh, assess myself in a way that can give her reassurances. You know, at the top of your question, when you said your girlfriend found out in a roundabout way, I knew exactly what you meant by that. That a friend or a relative saw her boyfriend on a dating app and told her. So it wasn't just that you were flirting with other people. You flirted with other people in such a way that your girlfriend was embarrassed and humiliated in the eyes of her friends or family, whoever it was that saw you and ratted you out. So that compounded the injury. It wasn't just that you flirted with somebody in a bar or somebody at work and she found out about it or you told her about it. You flirted in such a way that said to her friends or relatives there's something very, very wrong with this relationship, with your relationship with her, with hers, with you and potentially therefore something wrong with her or you or both of you and she was – understandably angry. Sounds like she's contemplating taking you back though. And I think she should take you back. People sometimes need attention from others. People sometimes need to get their flirt on with other people. We live in an insane world where people insist that an infidelity is an unforgivable offense and then define absolutely everything as an infidelity. Not just fucking somebody else or sleeping with somebody else or getting with somebody else or hooking up with somebody else, but flirting with somebody else. Or having too intimate a connection with somebody at work, texting, stopping in a bar and flirting, looking at pornography. We, it's nuts. It makes my head explode. People complain about how unstable relationships are. People complain about the divorce rate. And the people who complain about unstable relationships and the divorce rate are often the very same people who are trying to define absolutely fucking everything, looking at the barista, over-tipping the waiter as infidelity or a micro-infidelity which is just fucking absurd. A anyway, off on a tangent here. Back to you, caller. You self-medicate for depression with dating apps. That's your claim. That's what you told your girlfriend. I have my doubts. I wonder if you're being fully honest there. Because I've never heard of anybody self-medicating for depression with dating apps. That sounds like the kind of pivot where you get caught, you did something wrong, and you want to style yourself as the, the real victim here, as the person who deserves sympathy I was only doing that because I'm so depressed. Again, I want to allow for the possibility that you're being completely truthful. But it makes my spidey senses tingle. When somebody gets caught, gets caught red-handed, and rather than just owning it and or telling what may seem to be a scarier truth, they say, oh, I was sad, I was depressed, whatever, please feel sorry for me. I'm the real victim here. Because it would have been harder to say – I love you. I love our relationship. Every once in a while, I need my attractiveness affirmed by someone whose job it isn't to affirm my attractiveness. Every once in a while, I need to be looked at as desirable by someone who isn't my girlfriend, isn't my long-term partner. And then when I come home and you look at me like I'm desirable, I believe you. It doesn't feel like you're just treating me that way because that's your job to treat me that way because some stranger who doesn't have to treat me that way treated me that way, flirted with me, was into me. And then I come home to you and you tell me you're into me and those doubts that we have in long-term relationships where of course they tell me that. They have to tell me that. That's, it's their job to tell me that. 
Do they really feel that anymore? Well, is somebody else out there whose job it isn't to tell you that, told you that, I think you come home likely to believe your partner when your partner tells you that. That's usually why people in committed monogamous relationships who get their flirt on elsewhere harmlessly do it. The ego boost, the erotic energy it gives them, but also the affirmation that isn't just independent, I'm affirmed by this other person, but this affirmation that bolsters your partner's claims to still find you attractive after all these years. I think that's often why people in long-term committed relationships flirt, but that is harder to unpack for a partner than I was depressed. Feel sorry for me. If indeed it is depression and you self-medicate with apps and you want to get this girl back, you want your girlfriend to take you back, you need to lay out for her what your alternate treatment methods will be going forward. Do you need to be in therapy? Are there meds you haven't been taking that you should be taking? Are there other things that you can do in place of getting on a dating app and flirting with some strange women when you're feeling low? Are you able to be open with her when you're feeling depressed? Can you lean on her in the future? You've only been together two years. Maybe your depression and your, your dark moods are something that you've bottled up and not shared with her because you didn't want to scare her off. Now that she knows that you suffer with this, can you be open with her about it? Can she be what you go to when you're feeling depressed rather than match.com or Tinder? It's a conversation you need to have with her. But if you know yourself to be the kind of person who occasionally needs to flirt with other women, the kind of man who occasionally needs to flirt with other women for the erotic charge, for the affirmation, affirmations and erotic charges that can benefit your committed relationship, your monogamous, sexually exclusive relationship, you have to tell her that because you are going to do it again in the future and you will get caught doing it again in the future. And if you've promised her it's never going to happen again and you only did it because you're depressed and you're going to get into therapy and take your meds and do other things when you're depressed to self-medicate and then you do this thing again because this thing has nothing to do with your depression or it's a comorbidity correlated with your depression but unrelated to your depression in this instance correlated with but unrelated to, then you're really going to blow up your relationship. Then she's going to dump you and there'll be no third chance. So this is something that you do and need to do and that she can do and you would allow her to do too. Put that on the table. Be honest and straight and direct about it. Hi, I'm 23 years old. I live on the West Coast. I um, discovered masturbation at a very young age. I think I might have been like nine. Um, and it's been a long time. And um, I can't come during sex. I just can't. Like, I can do it so fast when I'm by myself. And then... I go to have sex with a partner and I just kind of freeze up and either unable to let go or unable to like fully communicate what I want because maybe it's too weird and I just like a lot of pressure in a certain place and guys can be, you know, they always seem like they're on this mission to make it happen, but they're actually just super like not trying to really work as hard as they could be, which sounds really bad, but I just was hoping to get some advice regarding how to make this happen because I really would like to, but it's, it, maybe it's just not in the cards. So do you ever masturbate with the guys you're having sex with? Just side by side in bed no. together? Have a wank? No. Why not? Never tried it. Why the fuck not? Seems like the obvious first know. step. 
Yeah, I know. I know it's obvious first step. And I've tried, like, I've tried, you know, bringing out a vibrator, but that hasn't really been the most successful because I'm always too scared to, like, really let go with that because I kind of like things a certain way and I won't always dictate them Why? to the guy. Dictate. I don't know if that makes sense. Dictate. Or, like, tell them what to do. Tell them or... what to do. He wants you to tell him what to do. Oh, my God. He wants to make you come. You know how to make you come. He's trying and trying and trying, and you're not giving him the info that he needs to achieve the orgasm that you want to have and that he wants to facilitate. And that's what he's there to do, facilitate your orgasm, not give it to you. It's not a gift he's giving you. It's an experience that his presence helps to facilitate, and you're not giving him the information he needs to 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 be a facilitator of your orgasms. I I guess not. I mean I, I I know that I guess I guess the advice that I that I could use is like what do you, do you have any advice to get over like the mental barrier of like masturbating in front of another person? I guess I just it's been such a private thing for me for so long that yeah. the idea of doing it with someone else watching is like it like freaks me out. Okay. Well, I've, I've talked about this on the show before, but I'm happy to unpack it again. And I, I've heard from so many women that this really did work for them. So I'm going to keep hammering away at it. Masturbate when he's in the house or in the apartment, but not in the bedroom and shut the door. And just there's okay. just this awareness that, that he is in the shared space, but not in the bedroom. And he knows what you're doing. Right. And then okay. masturbate with him at the door, but the door closed masturbate with him at the door door open but him not facing you masturbate with him in the bed next to you but blindfold him like sometimes it's easier to 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 self-pleasure in front of someone in the dark because the the eyes looking at you can make you feel really self-conscious and you're going to be scrutinizing their face for judgment right or or for some sort of Mm -hmm. information or feedback and you'll put the worst possible spin on any expression on his face because of the sex negativity and the self-consciousness. So just blindfold him or blindfold yourself or both. And then masturbate together in bed without him touching you. Masturbate laying between his legs without him touching you in any way, just holding you and just acclimate to his presence and have orgasms that you associate with his presence, right? Carve a new neural pathway. Make a new association that you can actually come when somebody else knows you're masturbating, when somebody else is in the room, and then build up to putting the vibrator in his hand and holding it with him and using it how you need to use it. You know how to make yourself come. You're the expert. You need to teach that guy, whatever guy you're dating, whoever you're with, you need to teach him how to do it for you. Wow. You need to be a guy about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Guy, think back at all the guys. How many guys have you had sex with? Give me a number, a rough figure, ballpark. Like 20. Okay, good. Good. Um, an ambitious weekend for some guys I know, but <laughs> but pretty good for a straight girl, right? Yeah, I was in a relationship for a long time, so. I'm not, I'm not trying to like, like reverse slut shame you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but think of all the guys that you've had sex with. There's probably with different guys, different penises, different angles that provided them with the friction that they needed to climax, right? There's like a guy who had to get you yeah. into a particular position or reposition himself to, to, so that his dick was like sliding in and out of you at the perfect angle. To, to hit the nerve endings on his frenulum or on the head or on the shaft, wherever his like money spot jackpot nerve endings are. And he would angle himself to hit just that right spot, right? Yeah. 
and he would move your body, yeah. you know, hopefully to a, a position that you also found pleasure in and you, it, it wasn't doing anything, putting you in an uncomfortable position. But you, you've seen guys like position you so you're just right for their dicks. Right? Yeah. You have to do the same yeah. with those guys for your clit and your bulb and your junk. Yeah. Where, wherever your sweet spots are, he's a giant, sweaty, hairy sex toy. <laughs> and you need to yeah. move him into the position that you need him to be in to, to, to get you off. And if he's not an insecure bag of slop that you don't want to be sleeping with anyway, he'll be thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. That you're, that you're, you, that you're taking your pleasure from him in this way where then he doesn't have to guess at it and try to hit marks where he, he doesn't know where they are, where he's firing blind and tell him what you need. Yeah, I, I do. I do do that part. I'm, I'm pretty good about being really communicative, sometimes mm-hmm. overly communicative in bed. I guess it's just, I've sort of, I'm not sure if it's, if it's me doing it like wrong or if, if, if they're wrong? hitting my sweet spots, but I just like, I can't seem to overcome that whole, uh, okay. the stick is in me and I'm going to come now. Like I can, I can only do it when I masturbate. So it's a psychological block. It's like, psych- you're, you're afraid of losing control yeah. with somebody else. there watching, right? Yeah. And losing yourself Which in that is, moment. Yeah. And, and really, being, I think, I think that's what it is. You know, an orgasm, you're kind of physically out of control. You're kind of paralyzed for a moment. It's a kind of, you're vulnerable and in a way helpless. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some people enjoy that feeling of helplessness and vulnerability in the presence of another person. And some people that scares them and it can take some effort to, to, to bring together uh, that kind of vulnerability and, and helplessness with a, another person being present and witnessing that. Right. Particularly if you started masturbating young, you said you started masturbating young. Were you ever caught? Were you ever shamed by parents? I actually was never caught. I think they might have known, but I don't think I ever got caught or shamed or any of that. I think that it, it might just be like a a thing that was kind of teased for a while in general with like people around you in school. But mm-hmm. once you figure out what it is, once I figured out what, what exactly was happening, there wasn't really any shame to it. Oh, good. You know? Well, then your, your block probably won't be as large as some other people's blocks around this. Because some people, pick yeah. young women, they started masturbating, you know, very young and they got punished for it, shamed for it, screamed at, and they don't mm-hmm. feel entitled to that pleasure and they feel guilt racked about it. And they feel like if there's somebody else watching, it's like their parents watching it ruins it. They're afraid of yeah. the shame and the punishment and the recrimination. And the only way they can relax and really let themselves come is, you know, in a, in, alone in their bedroom with the doornail shut. So it, it shouldn't be as big a deal for you. It's just, you had your orgasms alone for a very long time. No, guys, going back to my the first chunk of advice, tell him you're going to masturbate. Start with him not even in the house. Just like let him know, I'm going to masturbate now. You know I'm doing this. I know you know. I'm going to see if I can come. If you can come, in the house, at the door, in the bed, blindfolded. Work your way up to physical touch while you're coming. And you can get okay. there. I, I promise you this works. I've heard from so many women that I've given this advice to that it fucking worked for them there hasn't been a double blind study okay. i don't have the data i don't have the science this is a I'm throwing a challenge <laughs> out there to all the sex researchers who listen to my podcast to do this study back me up here let, yeah. let, let's get the data and prove it uh, but anecdotally <laughs> i've heard from so many women 
uh, that this worked for them. And I want you to try it. And then I want you to call me back in three months or six months and let us know whether it worked for you or not. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally do that. I would actually, I would love to give that a try. I think that would, I think that would thrill a lot of my partners. <laughs> if I like had this idea, like I don't have a lot of dirtbag dudes in my life. Like some of them suck obviously, but most of them are like super into the idea of like trying new things. So I think that, I think that this would work well. Tell them you're doing a masturbation project experiment and <laughs> and you've recruited them for your study and you are the subject and here we go. A, a good guy will regard that as a sexy adventure and be thrilled to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I think so too. I think I think anybody who doesn't who isn't super down can just go away anyway. Always so. the right attitude. Good luck. I look I look forward to to the report back in 6 months. Thanks. Hi, Dan. This is a longtime listener from California. Your comments on episode 618 about doctors and their remarks in the medical record, I thought was kind of off. Mining medical records make us choose very specific problems for our patients. You know, we can't just put in diabetes. It's diabetes with neurologic complications without the long-term use of insulin. It's a menu that we choose where we choose individual options. So quite likely the high-risk sexual behavior was, you know, high-risk behavior amongst homosexuals, bisexuals. It probably was a menu of options that they had to choose from. Not saying that there aren't doctors out there who are not sex-friendly. Certainly there are, but I wouldn't necessarily go to this doctor up in arms because it probably wasn't totally their choice. Now, they could just not put that in the record at all and just say exposure to sexually transmitted infections, which is probably a little more broad and all-encompassing, but this might not be their fault. I think you overdid it on that one. Hi, this is to the woman in episode 618 who was wondering about how to not get so emotionally attached. Um, yes, everything Dan said, and uh, try dating more guys at once. So instead of investing in one guy for a whole month, date four or five guys at once. And then if one leaves, you're busy because you already have a date the next night. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the, on 618, the guy with the wife who doesn't like to give blowjobs. I have to say, I used to be one of those women that did not like to give blowjobs until I got a lesson from my gay boyfriend. Because I think a lot of women think you just like take the whole cock in your mouth and deep throat it and you choke and you tolerate it. And some people like that and some people don't. Then I was taught how to use my hands and my mouth at the same time. And it's very enjoyable for the receiving person. And then it's also much better on the person who doesn't really like to gag on a cock. So, oh, I also like a clean, shaved cock. Makes it much more pleasant. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. I am, of course, as I let you know last week, at home, in bed, packed with Percocet, recovering from my operation and nothing would make me happier than to see all of you rushing to itmfa.org and ordering some itmfa and peeps the motherfucker already gear that is the get well card i want from my listeners go to itmfa.org also you can order advanced tickets for the 14th annual hump film fest at humpfilmfest.com and find out everything you need to know about submitting your dirty little movie to my dirty little film festival go to humpfilmfest.com all right, 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Guy Branham on Twitter at Guy Branham. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.